Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to worship together today, to be edified by your word and nourished by your sacraments. We ask that you would move us by your Holy Spirit, Lord, to learn from your word today. Give me clarity of thought and speech. Prepare our hearts to receive what you have for us, that you may be glorified, that we may be edified. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. And if you have your Bibles with you, uh, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 17, verses 5 through 10. That's our lectionary reading today. Luke chapter 17, verses 5 through 10. Can somebody uh, tell me what language their Bible's in, just out of curiosity? English. English, yep. Not a trick question, I promise. So, well, on October 6th, 1536, what we often take for granted, a Bible in our own language, was uncommon. And a man named William Tyndale was killed for translating such a thing, the Bible from Latin to the language of his people, English. William Tyndale was a brilliant priest. You know, he was an intellectual whose prowess was taking him very far in the church in his day. But there was just one problem. William Tyndale wanted to preach the biblical doctrine of justification by grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone. So this is a problem because the Reformation has only just begun. It's in its early years, about 15 years by the time Tyndale comes on the scene. And the Church of England was still under the auspices of the Church of Rome. Well, like the Apostle Paul preached, how can they know if they have not heard? So Tyndale set out to translate the Bible into the native language of his people so that they could hear and understand the gospel. It was a passion that would cost him his life. You see, in order to maintain power and control over the population, the Roman church had required that the Bible be read only in Latin and same for the Mass, under the pretense that a unified language would unify the church. Though the political implications here are obvious, what happens when you're a peasant who can't understand Latin? You don't know what's being preached, and so you are powerless to believe and under complete control of, at this time, a very corrupt institution. Tyndale was more than just a translator, though. He was a servant of Christ, and when he wasn't busy translating scripture into English, he was ministering to the poor and writing practical, biblical tracts in the English language to be distributed to the people around him. Well, ultimately, Tyndale was betrayed by one of those people to whom he was ministering, a man named Henry Phillips, who had gambled away all his money, turned in Tyndale for translating scripture in exchange for a small fee. Well, in 1536, Tyndale was condemned as a heretic by the church, and on October 6th, he was burnt at the stake. Today, in our church calendar, we remember William Tyndale as a great martyr of the faith. Capturing the faith of a servant in Christ, in one of his tracts, Tyndale writes, Let it not make thee despair, neither yet discourage thee, O reader, that it is forbidden thee in pain of life and goods, or that it is made breaking of the king's peace, or treason unto his highness, to read the word of thy soul's health, 
For if God be on our side, what matter maketh it who be against us? Be they bishops, cardinals, popes, or kings. Wow. Let's let that sink in for a second. Do we? We don't really talk like that much anymore, do we? It's pretty intense. Well, today we're going to continue our series in the Gospel of Luke entitled, That You May Be Certain. As we journey through Luke's Gospel together, today we're camping out in a small passage, Luke 17, verses 5 through 10. If you missed last week, Gene preached on Luke 16, 19 to 31, that's the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, right? And we learned about some uncomfortable things there. We don't like talking about the doctrine of hell, but that's exactly what we talked about last week. And in so doing, we learned that there are eternal ramifications for what we believe or don't believe about who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us. Well, in today's passage, it's a little briefer, but it's excellent. And in it, I think we'll find that Jesus has a lot to say about the faith of a servant. And we're going to sum those up into four points. The first point, faith is a gift. The second point, faith endures. The third point, faith takes action. And the fourth point, we are unworthy of this gift of faith. Let's start by looking at verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. It's kind of a random place to start. You know when you walk into some place and you walk into the middle of a conversation and you're kind of like, I want to be a part of this, but I have no idea where it's been and where it's going. You're kind of like, oh, yeah, increase my faith. What, What are we talking about? Well, to get the context about why they are desperately asking for more faith, we need to look back a few verses. So quickly look with me at verses 1 through 4. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you even seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must Forgive him. So that's like a sermon of itself. But that's a song for another time. Today, that's just our context. We find ourselves in a conversation where the Lord is warning about temptations to sin. He's warning that we cannot tempt others to sin. And he's telling us about forgiveness. So this is the Christian life, kind of in a, in a three-part summary, right? We flee temptation, we don't tempt others, and we forgive people even when they keep hurting us. We can all think of somebody who keeps hurting us, and we don't really want to forgive them, right? So put yourself in the apostles' shoes here for a second. That's why they're like, Lord, increase our faith. We can't do this. The Christian life is a weighty task, and the apostles know that they are not up for it. And so to be equipped for this life, which they can't do themselves, they need something which they can't get for themselves. And so they ask for more faith. In in, uh, verse 5, we see that word increase, increase our faith, which means to put together for a purpose or to do it again. That's the word. So basically, we have a specific reason we want this, and we need you to do it again. We know that you've already drawn us to you, but we need a little boost here. They want faith for a specific reason, to live the Christian life. 
something they can't do alone, and so they require something they can't get of themselves, as we've just said. That is faith. Which brings us to our first point. Faith is a gift. Faith is a gift from the Lord. We don't give it to ourselves, and the apostles know this. That's why they're asking for Jesus to give them more faith. So, how does Jesus respond to this request? Kind of in the same way he always responds to people. Using literary devices, using allegories, metaphors, parables. So let's look at verse 6. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. This verse can be a dangerous verse when taken out of context. So I'm going to quickly step onto my soapbox and say, let's make sure we get one thing clear here. Just because we believe something will happen or believe that God will make it happen does not mean that he will make it happen. Right? This, this is name it, claim it, like word of faith movement going around that says that if you think he will, then he will. Listen, he can, but it doesn't mean that he will. Not in this passage and nowhere else in the Bible are you going to find Jesus preaching the prosperity gospel, which tells you that if you just have enough faith, then things are going to go your way. It's poisonous to the church, and it's not anywhere in Scripture. So if we get caught up with trying to get trees to uproot like those Lord of the Rings tree monsters, right, and scamper on down to the sea, we're going to miss the point of this verse entirely. The intrigue isn't the comparison. There's significance there. Faith like the grain of a mustard seed. Why does this matter? Well, the mustard seed is the smallest seed that any Palestinian farmer would sow in their field. But when, after rain and storms and tilling, things which that seed does not do to itself, that mustard seed grows to a height of over 10 feet tall. Jesus is teaching his disciples that this gift of faith in Christ is something that the Holy Spirit grows, which brings us to our second point, faith endures. Listen, this doesn't mean that every day we're going to feel like faith endures, right? We can all think of a day where we're like, my faith isn't even enduring, let alone growing, right? We've all had bad days. In fact, I would dare say that maybe most of our life is either spent in mundane moments where it doesn't seem like God's at work in our life, or in dark moments where we lose a loved one and we're suffering, where we can't pay our bills, so we're really stressed out, so on and so forth. You can enter your own situation there, and it would be just as valid. Life is hard. But for this gift of saving faith, like the experience of the mustard seed, These storms and the rain that comes with them are what feed our faith, which starts the size of a mustard seed and grows to full height by the power of the Holy Spirit because we know that the Lord is able to take hardships away, right? He's able to take hardships away. He's able to take away your sickness. He's even able to give you a financial miracle. But even if he doesn't, he's still God, and he's still good. Let's look at verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, (coughs) come at once and recline at table? It seems like once again Luke has just like redirected us entirely, right? 
First we're talking about mustard seeds, and now we're talking about being a servant, plowing in a field. What is going on here? It seems like it's a new conversation, but Luke records these conversations together. We'll talk about why in a minute, but first let's look at the substance of verse 7. Jesus is pretty clear here in his example, right? What is the role of a servant? To work, right? The servant works. That servant is out there getting sweaty and dirty. They're grinding on behalf of their master. So what does this have to do with verses 5 and 6? How does this relate to having faith like a mustard seed? Back in verse 7 again, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Well, Jesus is not changing the conversation here. These two interactions are next to each other because they're related. In verses 5 and 6, we learn about where faith comes from and how it grows and it endures. And in verses 7 through 10, we learn about the implications of faith. Let's look at verse 8. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you will eat and drink. Our third point this morning is faith takes action. So since I've got the mic, I'm going to share an unpopular opinion. Okay? I'm deeply persuaded that most of the revival movements of the last 50 years in America have hurt the church, not helped her. Well, why is that? Because they've misrepresented the gospel as simply fire insurance. They've reduced a life-saving faith, the faith that Jesus died for, to a sinner's prayer, smack you and get you out the window, right? Congrats, you're saved. That's it. Cut you off at a prayer. And they've not charged these new believers to follow Jesus. Discipleship is so uncommon in the teachings of these movements and often in the American church today that if you stood up here and you say, it's time, okay, congrats, I'm glad you made a confession of faith. Praise God. Now take up your cross and follow Jesus. Live for Jesus. If we stand up here and we charge people to be disciples, it's often misrepresented as works-based righteousness. But this is exactly what faith does. Faith works, not for love, but from it. Disciples, the servants of Christ, we don't work because we have to. Disciples work because the Holy Spirit has convicted them to live a life which represents well the Savior who bled and died for them. Martin Luther famously says, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. Friends, how do we expect for the world to believe in a life-changing message of the gospel, if they don't see the faith in that message changing us in our hearts and how we love our neighbors, how we exercise patience, how we prioritize our time. Faith takes action. Faith takes action. Let's take a look at verses 9 and 10. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Well, the answer is no. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, <coughs> say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So backstory, uh, back when my twin, twin brother and I were in elementary school, 
there was this thing called the goodie box. Behavioral manipulation at its finest. So the rules were, if you were well-behaved, you got to get a toy from the goodie box, right? Well, if you were the best-behaved, not only did you get first dibs, you got to get two things from the goodie box. It was awesome. Well, one day, as we're waiting in line trying to figure out uh, who's going to be the, who's the best kid today, you know, the teacher says, Jones boy, you were the best behaved. Come get your goodies. Humble as I am, thinking it was me, I walked up to get my goodies. Only to be told, not you, the other Jones boy. I get you guys confused. <laughs> well, my twin brother, the best behaved in the class. Are you kidding me? I couldn't let him get away with that. So, the next day, I convinced him that it was okay to take his cookie from the cafeteria and eat it in the classroom, knowing full well you can't take food from the cafeteria and you can't have snacks in the classroom. Well, I was the best behaved student in the class that day. <laughs> <laughs> it's this, is a, right, this is church, we can be honest here, right? So I'm sorry, but like, <laughs> it's just the way it was, it's what happened. What's the point of this story? Is this a point? You guys are like, I sure hope so. <laughs> the, the point is that we obeyed because we wanted a reward. We were behaving because we thought we could earn something from it, right? Jesus is telling us that disciples obey the master because they know their role. They know there are servants, and they know they are unworthy of grace and are expressing their gratitude and love for the Savior who died for them. Which brings us to our fourth point. We are unworthy of this gift of faith. Around the time William Tyndale was translating the Bible into English, there was a strange and frankly false doctrine going around which described works of supererogation. It's a fancy word that means doing things above or beyond what God requires basically a works-based righteousness. One of the glories of Anglicanism is that we respond pretty well to this. In the 39 Articles of Religion, essentially our confession of faith, right, or our doctrinal statement, if you will, responses to different issues of the Reformation, responds to this doctrine in Article 14, which reads, Voluntary works besides, over, and above God's commandments, which they call works of supererogation, cannot be taught without arrogancy and impiety, for by them men do declare that they do not only render unto God as much as they are bound to do, but that they do more for his sake than a bounded duty is required. Whereas Christ saith plainly, right from our passage this morning, guys, when ye have done all that are commanded to you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We can all think of a time where we saw ourselves as better Christians than someone else, right? I was just honest with you all about my brother thing. You guys could be honest with me, right? We have seen ourselves as better than others from time to time. Or we hit our, our pillow at the end of the night and said, man, did I earn God's favor today? But the reality is, no matter how many things that we do, no matter how well-behaved we are, we cannot earn God's favor. We cannot earn grace. We cannot earn faith. These things are a gift of God. 
So no matter how many things we do for the church and for Christ, no matter how moral or nice we are, as Christians, we ought to understand that we are unworthy servants of a loving master, Jesus Christ, who draws himself to us because he is good, not because we are. So faith is a gift. Faith endures. Faith takes action. We are unworthy of the gift of faith. This passage says a lot about having the faith of a servant. So what do we do with this? What are some practical takeaways that we can walk out with? Some, some tools in our toolbox. Well, I think there are two practical takeaways in this passage. A little high level, but practical nonetheless. First, our attitudes about non-Christians need to change. Second, how we do church needs to change. Our attitudes about non-Christians need to change because but for the grace of God, we were lost too. I guess this is assuming that we have bad attitudes about non-believers from time to time. If you are holier than we are, then good for you. This doesn't apply to you. But for the rest of us who mess up, rather than judge and condemn them, let's get to know them. You know, I want to challenge each of us to show the love of Christ to those non-believers in our community, whether we work with them, share a watering hole with them, go to school with them, or we even live with them. See, how will they believe if they have not heard? And why would they believe if they have not seen the love of Christ in us? We need to stop thinking that a nice new building or that a charismatic leader or that good music is going to be what grows the church. The only thing that's going to grow Christ's church or Christ's church at large is going to be, are we going to love our neighbors and are we going to invite them to come and be a part and see the reason for the hope that we have? That is the only thing that is going to grow the church. Another practical takeaway is that we need to change how we do church. See, if we're going to take Christ at his word, that we are his servants, then we need to be about the master's work. Church can't be something we do on Sundays only, though this is part of it. This is a central piece of what it means to be a Christian. We gather together, we worship, we receive communion, and we're sent. And that's the key word there is sent, because this is not the end of the Christian week. This is the beginning sent out to do the works he has given for us to do. And I get it. We're busy people. Sometimes I look at my calendar, and I'm like, oh, how, how am I going to get this done? And then I want to roll over and go back to bed and act like it doesn't exist, right? We've all been there. It's fine. I get it. But that's no excuse for neglecting to meet together as Christ's body and doing Christ's work in the community. Our sports our work, and our entertainment. These things that sometimes keep us from coming to worship together, they're not just misplaced priorities if they've gotten in the way of our discipleship. If they get in the way of our discipleship, those things which seem benign in our lives have become the weapons of the enemy. St. Augustine once said that the reason the church of his time was not seeing significant spiritual warfare was because the weapon of the enemy was entertainment, and it was self-inflicted, and we were all blind to it, he says. So let me propose that perhaps we are not seeing significant spiritual warfare 
in America today because the weapons of the enemy are things that we are self-inflicting and are things that we are blind to. Our spiritual warfare today is an overindulgence in entertainment. It's self-idolatry. It's an excessively busy life which leaves no room to worship with the bride of Christ and leaves no room to do Christ's kingdom work in our communities. Listen, we are servants of someone. So if you think you're a free agent, you're sorely mistaken. We are either master, we are either servants of a master who holds us captive, or we are servants of a loving master, Jesus Christ, who sets us free. And so we need to change how we do church. It cannot just be another commitment on the calendar for our Sunday that can be easily exchanged for our work or our leisure. We need to do life together. That is church. William Tyndale felt that being a servant of Christ was so important that it was worth dying for. He spent his time, his money, and his resources laboring for the sake of Christ's bride, the church. May we go and do likewise. It is worth it to be an unworthy servant of Christ, but the question that we need to ask ourselves is, can we count the cost of that kind of faith and pay that price as Christ's church, West Shore? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, for the conviction of your Holy Spirit in our lives. I ask that where we are not living for you, you would make us extremely uncomfortable. But where we are following you, that you would give us comfort by your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the gift of faith. Create in us hearts that would want to be your servants, that we would seek after you and be a light to this broken world. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.